Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back at you here. Episode number 46 of the Mets Up podcast. I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark, here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Talking about the New York Mets series against the Miami Marlins, and I wish that we only had baseball to talk about here, but we have some, of course, off-the-field stuff because the Mets can't avoid a scandal or a story for even 24 hours. I mean, not even 24 hours after the exciting doubleheader day where the Mets took two from the Marlins, we got another story about Zach Scott, DUI, 24 hours after this, you know, great day in Mets baseball land. So we're going to talk about the games. We're going to talk about the Zach Scott situation. We're going to talk about everything in Mets land as well as a little bit of a prospect report. And for those of you who have been waiting for the Francisco Alvarez video, the interview, we got official news. It's going to be coming out after Labor Day. The, the the episode after Labor Day, that's when it's coming out. It just doesn't feel smart to drop it on a Friday before Labor Day. Everybody's going down the shore. You're going to the Hamptons. You're going wherever you're going. Enjoy it. Wait for our Francisco Alvarez interview. It's coming, and I promise it will be worth it. We've been teasing it for three or four weeks now. We're going to talk Mets baseball and prospects, though, today. So before I do get going into it, you guys know oh, I need to do my little spiel here. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok now, too. Mets up. YouTube, if you want to watch a video version of the podcast, which a lot of you guys have been doing, Mets Up Podcast, you'll find us over there. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, specifically if you're on Apple, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review. It really does help grow the podcast. I mean, since the last time I asked you guys to do that and you went out and you gave us ratings and reviews, we've been getting listeners. So clearly there seems to be some sort of correlation there. Really does help us grow and we do appreciate all the amazing support you guys have been giving us. Now's my time to bring in James here and ask him how he's feeling because it's been good on the field. It's been bad off the field still. We're almost so impervious to like the crazy shit that happens in the Mets world these days. Immediately yesterday when the news broke that Zach Scott was arrested sleeping in his car at 4 o'clock in the morning in White Plains, I thought about the meme of um, Jim and Dwight. and I probably should have been more proactive and made that meme myself, but I've, I've had a very long couple of days here going back and forth. Traveling got canceled renewing of Labor Day plans, but when they're holding up the sign in the office when Dwight officially becomes the branch manager and it says zero days since our last nonsense, that was with the Mets. The Mets said zero days in between nonsense, between Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with Zach Scott. It was shocking because the narrative coming into the series was the Javi Baez comments and then Sandy Alderson and what was going on there. And then the Mets played well, which we're going to talk about here. And then immediately after that, the Zach Scott stuff happened. So let's talk about game one. I was actually at game one, got an amazing deal, sat behind home plate for $60, free food. We're watching a great baseball game, even though it was horrible for the first eight and a half innings until there was one out in the ninth inning. That's when it really got interesting. But uh, the Mets won. And we should be talking about it because 
This is a weird game. It started off weird anyway. This is the longest a game has ever been suspended since, what, 2017, I think? No, this is the longest a game has literally ever been suspended. I said that last episode, and it, it was true. And um, just because that suspended rule changed around, like, 2017, it might have been 2016, 2015, a little bit earlier, but they used to just restart any game that was rained out before it became official, or they would only suspend if the game was tied after the fifth inning. So just to start, this was a very weird game where we've been stuck in the first inning since, like, the second week of April. And ironically, like, of all this shit going on with Javi Baez, this was the day back in April where he hit a home run against the Reds and he chirped Nick Castellanos, who chirped him back, and it was, like, a lot of bad blood there. So twice in one day, Javi Baez created a lot of strife across the entire United States of America. Some other weird stuff in this game is that Brian De La Cruz made his debut for the Astros originally in June, I believe, and he is now on the Marlins and played in this game. He was technically a substitution because four of the nine guys in the Marlins lineup are no longer on the team. His Major League debut now comes weirdly, I believe, with the Marlins on this date in April. And then he also just has games for the Astros in between and then is back with the Marlins. Like, this was so bizarre for the stat books for everything. You've seen this happen, I think, a couple years ago with Juan Soto, that he technically made his debut earlier in the year, but actually got his first hit in Major League Baseball from a suspended game. I don't understand why they can't just say that it happened now. I don't know why we have to pretend like it happened in April. It's it's weird. It makes no sense. Dude, the same thing happened to Pat Mazika. His major league debut was no longer that ground ball walk-off against like the Orioles, whoever it was. Now he debuted on April 7th or 8th against the Marlins, and he went back to the minor leagues before he became a folk hero in May. The Marlins lost their entire starting outfield in between April, whatever, and today. Starling Marte, Adam Duvall, Corey Dickerson are all playing elsewhere. And it is really annoying that these statisticians keep this game as an April game because to get the box score and the play-by-play to start tearing through these notes, I had to scroll all the way back until April. Like, this is ridiculous. Shout out to Baseball Savant, who did not do that. They kept it with all the 830, uh, August 31st games. Very much appreciative of that. But even a guy like Brian Anderson, he played through April and May. Then he missed three months with an injury, and he came right back in the lineup in the same spot uh, on Tuesday night. It's just a really weird, funny thing's happening. Super weird, too, that because of like injuries and guys in lineups and stuff like that, you couldn't really move guys around as if this was the start of a new game. So if you wanted to take someone out that was not, you know, traded or was currently on the team, you were losing them for the rest of the game. So it didn't matter like what was going on there. You had to treat this as if it was a continuation of a game. Luis Guillorme going into this game had a thousand OPS. He led all the both teams in OPS for this game, which I thought was super funny. Not even on the roster, but he might be coming back soon here, which is very... Oh, no, wait, he is back, he came he back. Now? He was active for the night game. For the night game. But let's talk about what actually happened here, because as weird as it was uh, starting off, and I was at the game, and there was maybe a 1,000 people there, the game was not great to start. It was not great. Taiwan, our day man, looked a little human. He also didn't get a lot of help. There was a lot of flares, a lot of bloops, a lot of just kind of balls that found their way to be hits. That didn't help him. And then, my God, Dom Smith in left field looked so horrible. I've never seen two worse throws from a, le- a professional left fielder. I mean, Brett Gardner can't reach the cutoff, man. That's one thing. But Dom Smith had nothing behind them, and they were just so not on target. It screwed us because these guys, instead of being on first or getting out at the plate, they score a run, then they have another guy at second. It felt like for at least two or three innings every single time, a run would score, there would also be a man on second because of the throw. That was the whole rally in the second inning between the base hits, but I feel like it was, um, was it Miguel Rojas? I know Brian De La Cruz got 
a single, though, and Rojas was rounding third. Dom Smith already had the ball in his glove and was gearing up to throw, and he was stepping on third base, and he went right home and got there so simply as De La Cruz came around the second. I believe the same thing happened on um, Rojas' single the, yeah, the at-bat before. Was running. Yes, yeah. exactly. It, they're just completely picking on Dom Smith, and it's so obvious that the guy is not a major league outfielder, and we have to kill the narrative that he is. Yeah, this is going to be an issue going forward because this seems like the first game that I can remember that teams went, it's Dom Smith in left field. I'm going to just send him, send him, send him. Because as you said, they were dead to rights. But it's, again, a first baseman playing left field. He's not going to have a good arm to begin with. And if he does make a good throw, you're probably still safe because there's not going to be a lot behind it. This is something to keep an eye out for here. Because 100% late in games, if it's a close game, every game is going to count even more than they normally do now. Dom cannot be in the game. And that's unfortunate. If you like his bat, which we're not really crazy about right now, but I would argue with you that every game still counts exactly the same because it's all just one of one sixty two. Yes, they're more but like they're more they're magnified, magnified. Yeah, yeah, but they count the same. Even before Taiwan got into trouble in the top of the second, we had a classic Mets first inning with a Brandon Nimmo leadoff double. Uh, for some reason, Francisco Lindor sacrificed bunt. That seemed oh, dude, so mad, so mad at the ballpark. The vibes were weird because there was nobody there, and because there was nobody there, you could hear everything. And I don't think that the majority of the ballpark was booing. It was actually weird. There was like right behind the dugout, it was packed behind the Mets dugout. And it's probably just because they let people move down. There really wasn't that much of a big deal there. But they were cheering loud. Like the the two, three immediate rows behind the dugout seemed like they were making a conscious effort to either A, embarrass the players a little bit by over cheering where when they do bad things. Or two, they were like, you know what? We're going to be behind this team. They apologized before the game, which I think was important. A lot of people in the stadium, I don't think, did know that. But there was an apology before the game by both of the players, Javi and Lindor. So it was a weird vibe. By me, there was three to four 50 to 70-year-old men who were screaming at the top of their lungs, like, fuck you, get out of this town, we don't want you, you're a bum. And I was like, that's weird to do before the at-bat. Let's do it after the at-bat. Can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yeah. What better way to ingratiate yourself with the 50 to 70-year-old old baseball mongoloids than dropping down a sack button in the first inning? That's what I was about to say. Is It felt like, to me, Lindor... Kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say bitched out. Folded? I don't want to say folded. He pandered. I feel like he pandered a little bit with the bunt. It was a safe thing. The old people are going to love it. People like me hate it. But I'm not going to boo Lindor. So he almost got the people who were calling him out and saying, you're a bum, you can't do this. And they're like, oh, a bunt, that's, that's good baseball right there. Move Brandon Nimmo over to third base. You don't give away outs. You just don't. And not in the first inning against Eliezer Hernandez, who I know you're a fan of. Yeah. But you, you don't need to give away outs against Eliezer Hernandez. It doesn't make any sense. You're not facing fucking Walker Bueller or uh, Max Scherzer, some, Corbin Burns. I mean, ridiculous. Especially when you're Francisco Lindor and your job is to drive in runs. There's no reason to be worried about moving a guy from second to third, again, in the first inning, especially when the guys behind you have not really been doing their job for most of the season as well. Pete has, but I think he's on one of the peak cold streaks again right now. He's on the 15 up, 10 down strategy. That's been all season. Yeah. And he's in the 10 down right now. But I do want to start talking about Taiwan Walker because this was another one of these weird Taiwan starts where there is a lot of good you could pull, but also a lot of bad that you noticed. Number one, as I've been saying for the last month, his four-seam fastball was the driving force in his good. It had tons of life. He maxed out 97.9 miles an hour, which showed up at 98 on TV, which got me pretty uh, excited. At the ballpark... I can say that the people who were around me and myself noticed. We're like, ooh, he's got some zip on that fastball today. Like, he was throwing—I think it also helped that Eliezer throws, like, 89-90. 93, uh, 93. 
Yeah, but he was also sitting 89, 90 sometimes. But his ball was zipping, and the fastball did look great. Definitely. And the fastball got eight whiffs and 24 swings, 33% whiff rate. That's great. Even though he threw it about 60% of the time, they only gave up two hits against it. And both of those fastballs were just middle-middle. And that's the command issues that Taiwan has had. One of those hits was the Jazz ground rule double that kind of ruined any chance he had to create like a like a very good outing, just drop to a good okay outing. And he did only throw four and two-thirds innings because he didn't get the one out in the first inning. So basically it's a five-inning outing where he gave up three runs. But like, I still thought it was pretty good. Like he brought his two-seamer back. He threw it the most he threw it since July 29th at 19%. But again, he did only have three called strikes with it. And on television, he was leaving it around the middle of the plate a little bit more often than he had or just completely missing. He did have those nice little corner spots where he was like getting edge against a right-handed hitter, but it just like wasn't all the way there. And overall, he gave up eight hard-hit balls in four and two-thirds innings, but like none of them were above 102 miles an hour. They were just being hit in good places, and he still got six strikeouts and 31% whiffs, which is just the bulldog we're used to. He just like wasn't fully sharp. But I think this is still more of Taiwan Walker's true talent than what we got used to in May and June. No, definitely. And I think as we get deeper into the season, we've been talking about this. The arm thing is always going to... I have breaking news. Oh my goodness, what just happened? The Mets have just signed Brad Hand. Evan Roberts. (laughs) He's coming home. Oh my God. The Mets just signed Brad Hand. All the Mets fans... This is unbelievable. This is a twist and a turn that I want to know why Sandy's at the helm now. Sandy's of course, at the yeah. Helm. Give me that old guy right there. There's 89. Oh, Let me have him. God, Brad Hand. Can't wait to see him just completely <sighs> stank it up because that guy's got nothing. I mean, if we're going to allude to the next part of this uh, game breakdown, he's better than Heath Hembry. Okay, yes, I agree. He is better than Heath Hembry. He'll definitely have a better chance of getting major league hitters out than Heath Hembry because, my God. First off, Heath Hembry is a fucking human rain delay. That guy... This entire game, the pace of play was horrible. The Marlins step out of the box more than anybody. I'm going to sound like an old guy here. Get in the box, swing the bat. The fans were chirping Jesus Aguilar because that guy takes a full... He walks down to third base before he gets back into the box. It's unbelievable. (laughs) But everybody on this team takes so fucking long to get into the box. And then it doesn't help that Heath Hembree would walk around the entire mound between every pitch because he seemingly has no clue what's going on. He can't find the strike zone for the life of him. Every count was 3-2, it felt like. We don't need to see Heath Embry anymore. If it's going to be Brad Hand as his replacement, fine, so be it. But if I see a Mets fan act like Brad Hand is the savior and is going to be the difference maker in this team, what fucking planet are you living on? No, he's objectively awful. Something I've been saying on and off air for two years now to you, again, personally and privately. He's just horrifically bad. This, the Mongoloid Brigade is going to be really happy about this. We've also just dated ourselves showing that we're recording this on Thursday morning before Game yeah. 3 of the series. Labor Day. It's Labor Day. we got things going on. But the, other, the most disappointing point of this game was not being able to get to Eliezer Hernandez. And again, I like the guy. I've been on the guy for a couple years. I wrote an article about him way back in 2019 that got me started into like writing and analyzing baseball pitchers specifically. So I'm very appreciative of that. He has a very unique slider that's thrown pretty hard, but it doesn't move a lot, but it moves enough. It's kind of more like a weird hard changeup, but he grips it like a slider. It's just a unique pitch, and that kind of helps him to keep hitters off balance and not really let anyone get a good understanding of what he does. But we still have plenty of chances to score and probably should have done more of that, especially in the bottom of the fifth inning. Yeah, I mean, Pete, base is loaded. He swung at ball four. He... This entire game, a lot of great foul balls. Again, the Mets, we talk about it, love a good foul ball. Got to lead the league in how well we hit them. And he, he was found a bunch off, but he chased ball four with the bases loaded. I mean, it really wasn't even close. It was just Pete trying to do too much, which we have seen at times. 
And I feel like the added pressure of the fact that they were losing and the Javier Baez and the Francisco Lindor comments or whatever that were going on, even though they apologized, I still think that he just felt like the, the avalanche was coming and he had a way to stop it. You can't stop an av- uh, avalanche. You just got to do your own thing here, Pete. Got to be smart. Got to be selective. He wasn't, and we completely gave up a huge opportunity. Pete also made an error in this game that kind of screwed us a little bit too. He struck out in the first inning with the guy on third base. Rough day for Pete. Wasn't his game for sure. But luckily, we had other guys step up, one of them being Jonathan VR. Weirdly enough, I pulled out my camera because I was vlogging this game, and I pulled out my camera and I go, Ernie, your boy, Jonathan VR's up at the plate, and first pitch, bang, and I go, oh my god, he did it! He hit a home run, let's go! I was so, I was hyped for a Jonathan VR home run. I'm always hyped for Jonathan VR home runs, he's one of the best power hitters on this team. And I kind of want to go back and pick on Pete for a second, because we've mentioned a lot this year that he, he gets shaken kind of when the pressure's on. I don't want to say he gets shake when the pressure's on. That's kind of mean. Because he has had some big moments. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's so weird where you're like, when he's clutch, you can't get him out. He just refuses to get out. He just wants to be clutch so badly that I think there are times when it has a, a negative effect on his actual performance. And yes. I think this comes to fruition most often when he is at the plate with the bases loaded. This was Pete Alonso's 32nd plate appearance of his career with the bases loaded. I'd like to ask you, how many hits do you think he's gotten? In third two plate appearances? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's think of the math here. If you're hit, if you're a 300 hitter with 32 plate appearances, that's what? I don't know why in the world you would pick that number to start out with. <laughs> 32 is divisible by four. If, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a 250 hitter, you got eight hits. <laughs> why are you pick doing hard All math right. here? So guy? like nine. He doesn't have nine hits. He doesn't have eight hits. He doesn't have... I'm going to say six. I'm trying to think of this uh, mathematically. Six hits. Well, you are incorrect. It is three. Oh, that's way worse. Pete Alonso has three hits in his career with the bases loaded and eight strikeouts for a good for a 130 batting average and 25% K rate. How many walks? Let's check right now. Because Pete loves a good bases loaded walk sometimes, which is weird to say because we just talked about him trying to do too much here. Six. Six walks. He's got more walks with the bases loaded than hits. Twice as many. That's a little weird. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's not good. That's interesting. Three hits with the bases loaded in his career. That is a shockingly horrendous number. Especially for a guy who's been about a 250 hitter for his career, probably a smidge lower, with tons of power and lots of RBIs. It's really, really strange fact that we should probably keep an eye out for the next few years. If Pete Alonso just can't hit with the bases loaded. What is RISP? That's my favorite thing to say on Twitter. This entire Mets team, what is runners in scoring position? And they do come up with the bases loaded often. This would make sense as to why we have issues with scoring those guys. Because Pete, unfortunately... There's like a mental block there when the bases get loaded. But while that was the story of the game at the time, there was a little bit more that happened in this game. Castro, two innings, Mm -hmm. finally worked for once. And it was weird because at first I was like, they double switched him. Like, what are we doing? This doesn't make sense. But they did need the innings and it paid off. He looked good. There was second inning was better. Yeah, it wasn't smooth by any means, but he got the job done. So that was nice. Yeah. And this leads us into the eighth inning here where we had another big moment for Michael Conforto. And he came up against Stephen O'Kurt, who's just a left-handed reliever that the Marlins have. O'Kurt. Whatever. O'Kurt. Um, Cardi B action over here. It didn't feel good. You knew in your heart that Michael Conforto should not be facing this guy. The O'Kurt guy, again, nothing special, but Conforto has just got no idea how to hit a lefty this year. Absolutely no clue. And he gets up to the plate, okay at bat, but doesn't really look in control. Just kind of, again, found, found stuff off. 
and he pops up into foul territory, which is like probably the second worst thing you could have done besides hitting to a double play there. Conforto then goes into the dugout and goes fucking nuts, which we've never seen Michael Conforto, honestly, maybe show an ounce of emotion. He showed a ton of it, and he was pissed. And I saw this because my dad took a video and sent it to me while I was at the game, but I kind of liked it. I mean, get the job done instead. I'd prefer that, but I'm glad that I saw Michael Conforto at least for once look like he gave a shit. It's not that he doesn't. It's just at times his stoic uh, emotion can get used as like maybe he just is just kind of going through the motions at times maybe. Oh, this outburst really stuck out to me as, again, something that I've never, ever seen out of Michael Conforto before. Two weeks ago when he hit that, or last week, whenever that was, when he hit the big home run against the Nationals, that was last Saturday actually, yes. Yeah. Late in the game, showed a lot of emotion, rounding second base. And later on, second game of this doubleheader, he also showed emotion when he hit a piss missile out of the ballpark. But this was different. He didn't come through, and you could just feel months and months of frustration building up to this point. Uh, just still in the midst of like a 2-for-30 stretch, whatever he was in before he got the big hit later in this game. And he slammed his bat, and he slammed his helmet, and everyone like looked. And a few times, not just once. Yeah. Like bang, bang, bang. Like, I got to get all my craziness out of me. Definitely. And Jousey came over and talked to him, like, right after. Put his arm around him. Because that's what you need to do when a guy like Conforto, who I don't want to call him a young player because he's been in the league for six years. and it's like 28. Yeah, we're about ready for him to have pro- hopefully taken a step. I wish he was a leader more so at this point in his career. But you still got to keep these guys locked in because you never know you're going to get another shot. And maybe this could be what we can look back for as the turning point in Michael Conforto's season, albeit way too late. But we got to pick some positives here because we did get some magic in the ninth inning. Some? Uh, well, a lot of magic. Heaps, heaps of magic. <laughs> we got all the magic in the world. The baseball gods ascended from heaven and said, here you go, New York Mets. We literally cannot write it better. Brandon Nimmo gets it started with a huge two-run home run to make it a two-run ball game at the time. Piss missile to center field. I love seeing him hit for power, and I know that he's not that kind of player, but when you see the home runs that he's hit recently, you go, man, there's a scary potential in this guy. If he can just like really start to barrel up those baseballs and get some lift on him, because he'll get those doubles in the gap. He'll hit those line drives. But when he gets lift on it, he's got big home run potential power. I think there's no doubt in that. And he has done it in the past. This is the least power he's basically had ever in a professional season. I feel like he possibly has made the um the choice inside his own mind to trade some more power for more average, but he's hit the hardest ball of his career this year at 111.5 miles an hour. He's turning in the highest walk rate of his career at 15.6%. He has literally the lowest chase rate in baseball. The num- number one, chases the fewest pitches in baseball, Brandon Nemo. And the one thing he just has regressed in his barrel rates. He, he's usually sat between like six and seven with a career high during the shortened 2020 season at 7.7%. This year is down 3.7%, just seven barrels and 190 batted ball events. So you kind of hope that he can put all these things more so together next year, maintain the 270, 280 average with those barrels, but it's at-bats and balls in play like this that make you think it's possible. Yes, and makes you go, oh, he could really, like, he's been very good. He could be really special. So it's great. And then Lindor comes up next, and he smokes a ball to right center field. The fuck is Jesus Sanchez doing there? He played him perfectly. I mean... You think about it, you talk about it out loud. How many times as a right-handed hitter have you seen Lindor hit the ball down the line? There's no reason to guard it, really, at that point. Marlins played him beautifully. About the only thing they did right in this inning, though, because now there's two outs. And they got Dom Smith up at the plate, and he somehow got this cheapo shift hit, which Brian Anderson, I don't even know how he got a glove on it, by the way. Great defender. Yeah, saved an extra base. But Dom got a cheapo hit from the shift. Pete smoked a double, which was nice. Pete Pete steps up in the ninth inning, I will say that. As it long as the bases like, are not loaded. 
As long as the bases are not loaded, Pete is ready to go. And Javi Baez steps to the plate. And again, I talked about the baseball gods ascending from heaven and giving it, or descending, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Giving us the game and saying, here you go, Mets. I literally can't give it to you. I couldn't script it any better. I, in my vlog, I foreshadowed. I was like, Javi Baez has a chance to come up to the plate in this game to win it. How crazy would that be? And he does. And he hits a chopper to Miguel Rojas in the hole just deep enough where Javi Baez can leg it out. And we have got a chance to win this game here. Michael Conforto up at the plate. Before we talk about Conforto, I want to note how funny it was that Baez's first at bat in the game, either in the eighth or seventh or eighth, he was booed to high hell. All, all of the old men were ready for this one. Everything they saved at the beginning of the game, I guess some more people might have trickled in later on as this game progressed at day game, and he heard it big time. But this big at time bat. Was. There were cheers. There were cheers. Everyone was feeling good. Everyone was feeling excited. They were like, you know what? We got to stay positive. We got a chance to win this game. Javi with that chopper keeps the game going. And it's got Michael Conforto now up at the plate against the Marlins, who he's got some history with this year. He stuck out the elbow. He's been a thorn in this team's side, not necessarily because of his play, but because of the luck that he's gotten in how he's played against this Marlins team. And he slashes one right down the line. First pitch he sees is Javi Baez is running from first base and scores from first base on a ball that's hit to left field because the Marlins, for some reason, left Jorge Alfaro in left field. I can't even... Don Mattingly, I talk about it all the time, is just one of the worst managers in baseball. He's great with a young team because he is a player manager, but in terms of actual game decisions, people want to talk about Luis Rojas not knowing what he's doing. Don Mattingly doesn't have a fucking clue. I mean, this guy has no idea. He's pulled Clayton Kershaw for Adam Librator before. Dude, the craziest thing was that they sent up Magnaria Sierra in the, I believe that was the eighth inning or the seventh inning as a pinch hitter, and yeah. they did not put him in the outfield. He's a plus, plus, plus defender out there. The only reason he's still in the major leagues is because of athleticism and ability in the outfield. And they left... A catcher, Jorge Alfaro, out there who does have a cannon for an arm. He really made that play interesting, but he just completely like snow coned the ball in left field, scooped it in the air, kicked it five feet away from him, and that gave Javi all he needed to get around. And boy, did he score, and the Mets win. The Mets were dead for eight and a half innings. And in the ninth inning, with a two out rally here, the Mets go ahead and win. They score five runs in the ninth inning, get so much energy, so much excitement. And it made you forget about all the nonsense and all the booing and all of that. You were like, whatever it is that just happened, this could be a turning point for the New York Mets and lead us into game two. Now, before we do talk about that, Gary, Keith, and Ron were going off. It was awesome, their reaction. Gary is just simply the best in the business. I, I, I feel like that's just been cemented now that he's just so good on the mic his calls are fantastic no great the, the classic pen throw i also liked watching the um the difference between gary ron and keith as this was happening because keith was unamused the second the ball went in play gary shot up in the air he might have been yeah. standing just to make the call anyway he's like such the perfect combination of fan and announcer i don't even think it's perfect because he's way more of a mets fan than he is like an announcer i am I feel bad for all the other fans in baseball that they don't have diehards calling their games on a nightly basis. Because he's like conversing his whole body. He's pumping his fist in the air. He's going, he's going, go, he's going to score. And that's like what makes the call so great is that he cares, but he's not a homer either by any means. He will critique the Mets. And that's what I like. feel like a lot of people hate about other teams' broadcasts is they won't talk about or they talk about their team too much only in positive aspects. Gary will get a little negative sometimes. But when the Mets do things right, 
There's nobody better on the mic than Gary. So that was great. That was a really good game one. Looked like it could have been really, really, really bad losing that game to the Marlins 5-1. Before that inning, the team was dead. No juice. It was quiet. Everyone was kind of just standing around, kicking the dirt, looking at their shoes. There was nothing going on there. But the ninth inning, it got a spark, and this led into game two. The good vibes continued, and they kept rolling. Definitely. And we had contact king Trevor Williams on the hill, who did one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen in a baseball game in the first inning of game two, throwing a seven-pitch inning that included two hits. I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, we talked about it when he was on the Cubs. He's very unimpressive. He's yeah. Nothing much, but if he's going to pitch the contact and we're going to play the defense the right way and we've got good gloves behind him, it's going to work. And playing against the Marlins lineup. And in City Field, which doesn't give up hits. Yeah, he did wind up with like a low-key, like pretty good outing. He had 25% whiffs, four strikeouts in four-plus innings, and all of that happened by throwing 75% four-seam fastballs at 91 miles an hour, which is you, you do what you do. You do what you do. You do what you do. You do what you do, and that's what Trevor Williams did. He pitched, and he was good enough. That's all we needed in a seven-inning game was for him to give us just a tiny little bit of length so that we can have the actual bullpen arm comes in. It also helped that we got some runs. Michael Conforto, we talked about this might be the turning point. What a fucking shot that was. I can't remember the last time Michael Conforto hit one into the Coca-Cola corner. It was a breath of fresh air to see that swing because that seemed like the first time this year he truly crushed a baseball. Well, you are correct because that was his hardest hit ball of the season. At 111 miles an hour, it traveled an estimated 435 feet, and he was fucking jacked up rounding second base. Screaming, let's go, yeah. And it did suck that it took his four-inning score run off Edward Cabrera. Because while he has great pedigree, I wasn't like thoroughly impressed by his stuff. He just looks fine right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's something, maybe, maybe the scouting reports were wrong on him. I, I don't know, but the two games that he's had so far... He hasn't had the stuff that we thought he would. I mean, he has a real breadth of scouting reports. There's some people who swear that he could be an ace, and there's a lot of people who are like, he'll probably be a good reliever. I'd probably lean more towards the latter there. I think he's could be a back-end starter, but I don't see the swing and miss stuff coming across that large of an inning sample. He could do it. I think he'd be a lights-out reliever if he was trained that way. But let the kid start. See what he has. I'm just happy that he didn't have that much this game because... After the Conforto home run, Javi hit a single, and then McNeil immediately put one in the gap to get us another run. 3 nothing, and it just felt like, for the first time in a long time, that this is how this shit is supposed to work. Like, yes. all of these good hitters stacked in the lineup should be hitting the ball on a consistent basis and scoring runs. In theory, this should be a very hard lineup to face. Yes. And that hasn't been the case this year by any means, but it should be. It should be good. It should be deep. There should be... This depth that we were seeing, and it finally started to feel like it was coming together here from the ninth inning in Game 1 on to Game 2, which was really just, it was refreshing to see. It was the first time in a while with this Mets team that we were like, wow, here we go. This is what it was supposed to feel like. Definitely, and we did have, I don't want to say a scare, but there were moments of nervousness in the fifth inning of this game because Trevor Williams came back out. And while most Mets fans would see a guy who has four strikeouts and has thrown 45 pitches in four innings, you'd be like, you have to send him out. There's no reason Trevor Williams should have come out for the fifth inning of this game. He Not in a seven-inning game as well. No, 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 no. This is basically the seventh inning of a nine-inning game. You should be getting into the good parts of your bullpen right now. And then he let two guys get on base, and the Marlins sends up Jesus Aguilar as a pinch hitter. Right now... At worst, you should have been taking Trevor Williams out of the game, please. And Luis Rojas didn't. He let him face Aguilar. He got a base hit, scored the run, which was just a lock and a half. Now it's 3-1, men on. Aaron Loop comes in, walks a batter. I will say to Luis Rojas' defense here and even Trevor Williams, 
that pitch was a really good pitch by Trevor Williams. It was like two inches off the plate that Aguilar's just a professional hitter and just served it into right field. So like, it wasn't like he really made a mistake. He just got beat because Aguilar is better than Trevor Williams. Yeah, definitely. And Aguilar is the scariest hitter in this lineup, I'd say, by a wide margin. Leads the National League in RBIs, which is the best stat of the baseball season. Yeah. And you just, you shouldn't, you shouldn't let Trevor Williams face him in a situation where you can get hurt. And we're lucky it was it was a pitch out of the strike zone because it only turned out to be a one RBI hit instead of a three run homer. Yeah, it's the conversation that we've had with the Giants of you got to put your guys in advantageous situations. We did not have the advantage having Trevor Williams versus their best hitter on their team. No, and you you just should take him out. You should take him out in the situation. And then luckily, Loop got a double play to get out of it after he did walk. Jazz, I think it was Jazz. I think he walked Jazz afterwards. Some, I, I don't remember who it was, but he got the luckiest double play so even lucky. after the game with his bush light. <laughs> he was like, I just saw the ball ended up in my glove. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And there seems to be um, some negative regression happening for Loop, something I predicted a week or so ago. But the guy still has some magic. He's got magic. I think he turned wound up being the first Mets pitcher in history to finish three individual months with an ERA in the ones. With a minimum of 10 innings pitched, which is pretty fucking good. No, he's been, like, even when he is regressing a little bit here, he still is a very, very good left-handed reliever for us. Yeah, fantastic. And then Lugo came in right after for the sixth. He let two Marlins on. This was when Jazz took a walk, actually. I'm pretty sure he took a walk off Lugo, right? And then he just made mincemeat of the trash hitters, Magnaria Sierra, Sandy Leon, and Isan Diaz. That curveball he threw for the strikeout to get out of the inning was disgusting. I was like, I actually don't know how anybody, one, doesn't swing at it, and two, if you do, I don't know how you hit it. It dropped uh, two feet. It also made me mad because he was nibbling with fastballs that whole inning. I was like, "Bring the fucking hammer! Bring the fucking hammer!" I was like, in a, I was, I was, I was in some mood on Tuesday night. I was in a, I was in a restaurant with my parents. I was drunk, screaming at the television. The guys in there were big, uh, big Mets fans. Shout out Ava's in Kenilworth. They're gonna listen to this episode. They told me apparently, so I hope you guys do because here's the shout out. Yeah, very nice. Uh, and luckily we got out of it. And then Diaz comes in, shuts the door because Edwin Diaz is so good. He's mm-hmm. elite. He's one of the best closers in the game. And the Mets win. The Mets take two on a doubleheader day. When does that happen? Not often. Not often. Now, we do have to give a quick shout-out to Howie Rose. Mm-hmm. Thoughts and prayers. Hope everything's going to be okay. He's going under some medical procedures, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And he is not going to be finishing out the season on the radio. Um, he has to step away from the team, step away from the job. So, sounds like it could maybe be serious. We hope the best for Howie. Best wishes. Legendary radio broadcaster. The Mets without Howie Rose is like peanut butter without jelly. It just doesn't go. Big part of the organization. Big part of the entire culture surrounding this team. And on top of that, he's probably one of the best radio announcers in the history of all professional sports. So, uh, best of best wishes to Howie. I hope he's okay. Hope we have him ready for opening day 2022. And then before Game 3, because it got rained out technically on what was supposed to be Wednesday... Before that happened, let's talk about Zach Scott. Let's talk about the zero days without a workplace incident meme because Zach Scott arrested Tuesday morning at 4 a.m. with a DUI sleeping in his car in White Plains. From what you told me, he was a block away from the police station. You you can't make this up. You literally can't make this up. We were riding such a high. All the Mets fans were feeling great. There was no negativity in Mets world after these two wins. As weird as this season's been, it felt like there was just no negativity. Everyone was like feeling good. And then Zach Scott gets arrested. Our GM, DUI. What the fuck, man? I guess technically that means that this happens, but even before the doubleheader. So yeah, so the way that the timeline works was that Monday was our off day, and mm-hmm. Steve Cohen was having a, a fundraiser, a charity event, a fundraiser. It was at his house, I believe, mm-hmm. in Connecticut. Which, 
just by the way, that's how much money Steve Cohen has. He has a charity fundraiser with what seemed like maybe hundreds of people at his home. That's just insane. But anyway, it was at his house. Zach Scott was there. It ended at 8 or 9 o'clock. And then from that time till 4 a.m., we don't really know what Zach Scott was doing. We don't know where he was. But it ended up with him having a DUI. And the media ran wild with this story, which that's kind of expected. A GM gets arrested for a DUI. They did the same thing to Tony LaRusa, so I understand it. But God, can we just please just be a normal organization for once? Please. I was pretty frustrated with the reporting of this story, especially by Jeff Passan of ESPN, someone who I've picked on for a lot of this year. He was the original person who broke the news that this happened after a fundraiser at Steve Cohen's home. And at 3.40 in the afternoon, Jeff tweeted that Zach Scott was arrested for allegedly driving drunk. He was at the Connecticut home of team owner Steve Cohen, sources tell ESPN, a fundraiser for the Mets Team Amazing Mets Foundation being held at the house. So when you say that sentence, you're leading your readers to believe that Zach Scott left Steve Cohen's house drunk and was allowed to get on the road. That basically that this organization is inept and nobody is stopping the very clearly intoxicated person getting behind the wheel. Of course, 30 minutes later, Joel Sherman, John Heyman, the New York Post, the Daily News, there's heaps of reports that came out that this arrest actually happened around 4 o'clock in the morning and that the fundraiser ended sometime between 8.30 and 9 p.m. And then Jeff Passan created a thread and updated everyone of that fact. And if you guys want to know why the thread and not a deletion of the tweet, deletion, is that even a word? Yeah, we'll make it a word. Yeah, deletion and a thread. This is like a, I don't want to say a big deal, but it's just annoying is because when you talk about impressions, which is how many people can be seeing the tweet, the original tweet got, let's say, we don't know the numbers, but it's going to get 200,000 impressions, right? Because that's the tweet. When you start a thread, you have to see the original tweet to then also see the reply in the thread. So in order for that reply to be seen, you have to see the first thing. No one's seeing the reply. It's going to get significantly less impressions, significantly less views. It just feels like a really lazy way, unfortunately, because I I do like Jeff Passan for his news breaking at times, but this was a really weird way to admit he was wrong. It seemed like he was doing it, but didn't want to get caught that he was wrong. This is the biggest problem with modern news media is that speed and being first is far more important than being accurate and being correct. And we can put numbers to what you just said, because I took these screenshots for a tweet of my own at 7.20 p.m. At that time, the original Jeff Passan tweet has 637 retweets, 1,000 quote tweets, and 6,000 likes. The response to that, as Joel Sherman reported, the fundraiser at Steve Cohen's house ended sometime around 8.30 or 9 p.m. The DUI arrest occurred seven hours after that. 77 retweets, 39 quote tweets, 1,000 likes. Yeah. That's a difference of hundreds of thousands of impressions. Yeah. Minimum. So I think we it's important to say that uh, this doesn't mean we're under undervaluing, undervaluing, undermining what happened with Zach Scott. It's just frustrating that the Mets are in such a shit spot right now and everyone jumps to shit down their throats. And then when they do get something wrong, it doesn't matter because it's still lol Mets. Like, it's just bad reporting. That's simply what it was. Definitely. And you're right. We probably should first have said that driving under the influence of alcohol or any drug at all is deplorable action. Bad. You should never do it. There should be harsher penalties levied across the country for people who do things like this. And I hope if Zach Scott needs help for any kind of issue he might have, he gets that. And I really wish he would have um, shown better judgment in this situation, especially as a guy who is like a public facing figure. Yeah. I mean, thank God it seems like nobody got hurt, which is like the biggest thing of this story is that no one got hurt. But fuck, man, we have to have better decision making, especially from a head of an organization. He's the GM of a team. 
It just is bad optics. One, to have a DUI. It's, it's never good, like you said. Deplorable. Bad. People make mistakes, but it's so easy in the year 2021 to not drive drunk. So easy. Two, it's not a good look when the GM of your team can't order an Uber to go back somewhere, can't have a car drive him, can't have a taxi, whatever it is. And he's also then making decisions as to who's on the baseball team. He's making decisions on who's on the field every single day. He's making these big overarching decisions. It's just a bad look that the guy who's in charge seems to be incapable of running his own life, let alone a team. Especially when Zach Scott, for this entire season, since Jared Porter was let go due to his uh, presence as a sexual predator, is the acting general manager. So you would think this guy would be like tip-top shape, doing everything he can to express the front office. Because before... Wednesday afternoon, his standing for next season was very much in question. And I think right now, his fate has com- fate has completely been sealed. It's basically been an audition this year for him, as whether or not he's capable of doing this job. And I think the poor play, plus this, has put the nail in the coffin for him. I don't think Zach, Zach Scott's coming back past this year. I don't think there's any chance. And it's just an additional um, notch against Sandy Alderson's professional judgment at this point in his career. Like, he really can't hire somebody without it being an issue. I think it's also worth noting that we got a bigger press release and a bigger statement from Sandy Alderson about Javi Baez's comments than the GM of the team driving under the influence. I think that also speaks heaps and bounds about where Sandy Alderson's mind's at right now, and it just seems like he might not be the guy. We've been saying this. I I think we're at the point now where, at least from the front office perspective, we got a clean house. We got a clean house. We got to start over. Buster Olney, while the article was pretty horrible, I think, in total— Uh, He did have a good point, and I'm not going to give him full credit because you've been saying this for a while as well. David Stearns, Milwaukee Brewers, that's the guy we need to get. Go and get him. Go and pay him all the money that we have. See what he's done in Milwaukee with way less capital, with way less funds. Get him in New York. I can only imagine what he'll do with this team. It's very reminiscent of what the Red Sox got with Heim Bloom or the Dodgers with Andrew Friedman or even the Giants with Farhan Zaidi. You're getting these smart forward-thinking guys who are ahead of the curve right now, and now they have the money to even use? It's a scary combination. I think another great option would be Eric Neander, who's currently running the Rays, because the Rays guys love going to teams with money and more prestige and not live in Tampa Bay anymore or St. Petersburg. And I think the third option, someone the Mets talked to last offseason, was the guy from Cleveland, the name I forgot before, remind me? Chris Antonetti. Chris Antonetti. Just guys who are running sharp organizations who I'm sure would welcome the opportunity to have a little bit more control and a little bit more money to make their decisions. The one name who I think, one, should not be mentioned, two, I don't even think this guy would have any inclination to do it, and three, I think the game has kind of passed this guy by, is Theo Epstein. I can't for the life of me see how this could even possibly make sense. So I will play devil's advocate here. I would be fine with Theo, but here's the thing that every Mets fan who's saying Theo has to get behind right now. He will probably win you a World Series. This guy, in five years, I think will win the Mets a World Series. And if that is your one goal, I think he's going to be able to accomplish that successfully. Here's what's going to happen, though. Francisco Alvarez, Ronnie Mauricio, Brett Beatty might play less than 100 games combined in a New York Mets uniform. He will gut the farm system, and he will fuck you for the future. Look at what he did with the Red Sox when he left. Fucked him. Look at what he did when the Cubs left. Fucked him. He leaves your organization in shambles, very similar to what Dave Dombrowski does as well. These guys will win World Series, but they will leave you in shambles after you get the one. So if you are all in on winning one World Series and not necessarily building a winning organization, but winning one World Series, Theo Epstein is probably your guy. If you want to build a winning organization that will have sustained success for years and years to come, that's not the right choice. I think even past that, 
that there is nothing that Dio Epstein serves to gain from coming to the Mets and succeeding. He's already broken the two greatest curses in Major League Baseball. He has, doesn't really have anything left to prove. Like I don't think that winning a World Series with the Mets is more impressive than doing it with either the Red Sox or the Cubs. So he would only be able to make himself look worse in like a historical sense, similar to the way Phil Jackson was when he came to the Knicks. And that was a situation of James Dolan just giving a blank check. I don't think that Steve Cohen will do that. I mean, I don't know he won't. I could see him doing that, but I don't think it, it would be prudent. And on top of that, I don't even know that Theo Epstein is f- fully fit and capable of winning in the modern Major League Baseball climate. His builds definitely were worse between his first set of championships with the Red Sox and then his second run with the Cubs. That Cubs team was built on pretty unstable footing the entire time, and he found a way to win a World Series on the backs of elite talent that were mostly produced from first-round picks that he made from being so awful for so long. Without that crazy talent floor, I don't know if Theo Epstein would have gotten there. And he did make some trades that were perceived as bad and moves that are perceived as bad now in hindsight, but that won them the World Series, like giving Ben Zobers a bag or trading Glaber Torres for Aldis Chapman. Or trading, well, this isn't this isn't one of World Series, but getting rid of Eloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease for Jose Quintana. Yeah, it's probably going to go down as one of the worst trades in Major League Baseball history. And he did all those things within 18 months, and... The Cubs have paid for that dearly. The Cubs are going to go through a rebuild right now, and there's no telling whether they even get out of it in the next five to ten years. That team is so bereft of talent. So I don't really know if Theo Epstein is even as good of a GM as we make him out to be. He, you, it is really hard to win World Series, and I give mountains and mountains of credit for that. But I don't think that he's anywhere near on the level of these other guys we've mentioned. And David Stearns, Eric Neander, and what's the fuck? What's the guy's name on Cleveland? Uh, Chris, Ant- Chris Antonetti. I want to call Chris him Carlo Antonetti. Ancelotti, but that's a soccer manager. Yeah, I, uh, Carlo Ancelotti. That's what I was thinking of too, honestly. Chris Antonetti. I also think Theo Epstein probably has some his, high, his eye set on higher sights here. I don't know if this has been talked about yet, but when he left the Cubs, it was under the impression that he was probably going to go into a role high up at Major League Baseball. I think Theo Epstein is trying to find a way to become the commissioner of Major League Baseball at some point. I feel like that's kind of like his next thing because he has, like you said, kind of conquered baseball. He broke the Red Sox curse. He broke the Cubs curse. What's left? Running Major League Baseball seems like kind of the only thing that's fitting. I think there's two things, two mountains left that he can climb, both of which I will, I personally would think are more impressive than those other two feats, which is the two of the most impressive things that's ever happened in baseball. One would be taking over an expansion team. Because Major League Baseball is going to expand the next five Ooh. years. Taking an expansion team from the ground up. That's something Dave Dombrowski expe- expressed interest in before he uh, signed on with the Phillies. And I think that's a big reason a lot of these hotter, high-profile vice presidents and presidents of baseball ops aren't fully ready to jump ship yet. Because I think everybody has that dream of Ooh. building their own organization from the ground up. And two, this is more out there. This is something I don't know if anyone else shares the sentiment besides me but running the fucking Rockies. If you can go out to Colorado and find a way to build a winner there and find an advantage to Coors Field rather than be uh, be submissive to it, that is the last baseball mountain to climb, more so than the Red Sox or the Cubs curses, because this is actually tangible. Like, it's a uh, metaphorical mountain and a literal mountain. They are literally on a mountain. Um, yeah, I think that's a young man's game, the Rockies. I think we've talked about this too. Like, if you're a young... Theo Epstein. No, but I'm saying, like, if you're a young, unproven guy, you want to go to the Rockies because you can make your name there. I don't think Theo Epstein really wants to challenge himself like that. I think he's like, why would I want to be miserable for five years trying to make this impossible feat happen? I think it'd be fun. The Rockies are 20 games over 500 this year at home. There's something to build off of there. No (laughs) one's ever done it. It's true. That is true. Now, 
Enough about Zach Scott. Bad. Terrible. Get him out of here. Whatever it's going to be, that's probably the last we're going to talk about it until he is inevitably fired. Now let's talk about Game 3. I honestly just can't believe that Carlos Carrasco just did it again. Did it again. He is incapable of having a clean first inning, and it's almost impossible for him not to give up a leadoff home run, it feels like, because on the first pitch of the game, Miguel Rojas sends it deep into flushing, and the Mets are in a one nothing hole immediately, and in fact, the first three batters all got hits, 2 nothing Marlins, and I was like, like, I know he's going to be fine, but like, what is going on in the first inning with Carlos Carrasco? I'm almost at the point where I'm just like numb to Carlos Carrasco giving up runs or at least a leadoff home run the first inning, and I'm respectful of the fact that it likely calms him down because two through five, this guy's one of the cleanest pitchers in baseball. It's just he doesn't really have maybe his feel in the first inning. The ironic thing is this just is like the incarnate of Steven Metz. Carlos Carrasco just doesn't warm up adequately. He doesn't have the touch of his off speeds early on, even though I think I think the Rojas home run was on a fastball, if I'm not mistaken. I also think the Jazz double was on a fastball. And also Jonathan India's home run when we were there was on a fastball. It seems like all it seems like every team knows in the first inning, Carlos Carrasco is gonna just put some fastballs on a tee for you. Yeah, just throwing right down the dick. And they made him pay. And for, it takes a lot for Miguel Rojas to make you pay. That guy swings a pool noodle. So all the credit in the world to him. Yeah, Miguel Rojas, uh, also funny story about me. There's a little incident with me and Miguel Rojas. Uh, I left him out of my shortstop rankings a few years ago just because, like, Miguel Rojas, who cares? He's, like, 25th through 30th at the shortstop position just because, wow, you got a nice glove, but you swing a pool noodle, like James said. To be fair, he's had a decent last couple years, but whatever. Not the point. He called me out. He called me out and told me I know nothing about baseball. There's more to the the game than just OPS than what a guy can bring to the field. Yeah, Miguel Rojas, how's fucking last place with the Marlins? Good luck. I'm so glad you bring so much to the field. Your team stinks. Anyway, that's my personal vendetta against Miguel Rojas. Fuck that guy. Quick tangent. Personal hatred. But anyway, it doesn't matter because now the Mets come to the plate and Jonathan VR on the first pitch that he saw goes yard. He did a lot of damage against the Marlins this series. His former team, of course, we have a good friend, Ernesto, sub tape. Everybody, make sure you tweet him when Jonathan VR does great stuff. And boy, was he getting bombarded because VR was doing a lot this series. First time since pitch tracking 1988 that both leadoff hitters hit leadoff home runs on the first pitch that they saw in the game. We've been begging for the juice all season long. This team needs juice. This team lacks juice. We want juice. And we just completely overlooked that we have the king of juice right here at the top four order, Jonathan VR. This guy is chock full of juice, pulp and everything. Just squeeze this motherfucker because good things are going to happen. He, in the leadoff spot, has been a game changer. We should have known when the team went like 17-8 and with the AAA lineup, he was leading off. He's the key to success. As long as Jonathan VR is leading off, I think this team can go places. The offense, while it wasn't crazy this game has somewhat come alive with Jonathan VR in the leadoff spot. And I didn't think that would happen when we have a guy like Brandon Nimmo and Lindor and Pete Alonso behind them. Like, it's it's just weird that he's our guy that gets everything going. Dude, you are totally right about that. I have some stats just to show how great he is when leading off. He's done so in 35 games this year, has 124 at-bats, has turned in six home runs, eight doubles, one triple, and has a slash line of 290, 376, and 515. Good for an 892 OPS. But wait, there's more. There's more? 
As the first batter of the game, Jonathan VR has a 308 average, 486 on base percentage, and a 947 OPS. I mean, are we in the conversation of talking about one of the best leadoff hitters in baseball right now? Don't twist my arm, but I think we might be. But there's more. There's more. <laughs> when Jonathan VR just leads off innings, he's hitting 340. <laughs> With a 421 on base percentage and a 1051 OPS. 1051! That's unbelievable. And granted, like, I think that's probably gonna get skewed a little bit because when he does lead off games, he of course is leading off the inning. But there's other times where he's not leading off the game and he's leading off the inning. What is what goes on in this guy's head where he's like, I am one of the best hitters in baseball when I lead off? Jonathan VR just needs to not see anybody on the base pats to be an elite hitter. I think that might either confuse him or make him nervous or anxious, or just make him lose his focus. He also just seems to be better when there's not that many many outs. He's kind of, I guess, similar things. Maybe he's nervous or he loses focus. He squeezes the bat too tight, because when he comes to the plate with zero outs, he has a 909 OPS. That drops to under 800 with one out and under 700 with two outs. And if you think maybe Jonathan VR is not clutch and you have like these little things in your brain from the year to think maybe Jonathan VR is not clutch. I feel like he doesn't come through that often runners in scoring position. You'd be correct because he has a 188 average with runners in scoring position. So Jonathan VR needs to be standing on the base uh, at the plate with no one on base and nobody out, and we have one of the best hitters in baseball. There's just too many distractions. It's like the batter's eye thing. He's, he's got too many people in his batter's eye. He can only see about seven or eight people on the field. You start throwing nine, ten out there, he doesn't know what's going on. Jonathan VR, Caballero Loco, you just got to keep him focused. Let him lead off. That's his move, and I feel like for the rest of the year, he has to be the leadoff hitter, especially knowing these numbers. Mets have to know him. They have to. I don't even think that a real team would dive into splits like this because they're not really indicative of anything. But a guy like Jonathan VR, you say Caballero Loco, he needs like those things that the horses in New York the City blinders, wear. Yeah. yeah, if the pe- people on YouTube see me right now, the things next to his eyes. So he doesn't know the exterior situations or anything going on in his periphery. He just has to look at the pitcher, no outs, no one on, hit the ball. And boy, did he get us going. It's exactly what we needed. Really good. And then Carrasco settled in super nicely because, of course, he does. He's a very good pitcher. He's a professional pitcher, and he's going to be great for us over the next few years that we have him. And he just did it again. We technically only, I think, have him for one more year. Yeah, but I'm, I, not I'm counting mistaken. this year, too. Okay, yeah, you can this year. The next the next four starts are going to be very, yeah, very uh, central to our playoff run. But he's just becoming, like, the adjustment god. Like, he goes out in the first inning, he gets walloped, and then no one touches the ball until usually he gets into the sixth inning, exactly as it happened again uh, on Thursday night. I've talked a lot about how Carlos Carrasco has featured different pitches in his different starts. And he did that for the f- with the fourth different pitch on Thursday night, featuring his changeup, throwing it about 40% of the time. And that joins his two-seam fastball, his four-seam fastball, and his slider as a pitch he has thrown the most in an individual game, which is just bananas for a guy who is, like, um, revamping the way that he is. And that changeup was electric. He was getting tons of swings and misses on it. He got nine whiffs on 20 swings. It looked electric. It was just fading out of strikes on all night long against right-handers, and left-handed hitters, the Marlins were flailing at it, and that's just what an experienced pitcher does. He finds out the, his most apt weapon to attack the lineup that he's facing, and he will use that the most. And it's pretty encouraging to see 
Carlos Carrasco be able to do that start in and start out? Yeah, no, he's just been giving us a chance to win despite the awful start, which is like something the Mets, they need the game to usually start pretty well when you're in a hole for a team that doesn't score a lot of runs to begin with. It has become an issue, but we got Jonathan VR leading off now, so it really doesn't matter because that guy will just put up runs no matter what he does. And like I said, Carrasco gave us a chance, and in the fourth inning, we were able to capitalize on keeping the game still very manageable. Only two runs at this point. We got back-to-back doubles from Nimmo and Lindor, something we just don't see too often. Nimmo double, Lindor smoked one into the left center field gap, and Brandon Nimmo scores. We got a 2-2 ball game, and then Lindor channeling his inner Jose Reyes again. He's on third base, and he draws a balk from Sandy Alcantara, and the Mets are winning 3-2. Second time in a week that Francisco Lindor has got a balk from third base and scored. That's got to be like something that has not happened in baseball often. Definitely, and we gave Eric Fethi a lot of shit for um, folding under the pressure when Francisco Lindor was dancing, but I have all the respect in the world for Sandy Alcantara. He's a fantastic pitcher. He's, I was, he's incredible. Gary stuff is was amazing. gushing, gushing over him. He's like, he he loves two guys that are not on the Mets more than anybody, and it's Sandy Alcantara and Herman Marquez. He <laughs> was talking about both of those guys glowingly last night. You were like, you would think that if the two best pitchers in the league were Sandy Alcantara and Herman Marquez, and they're both very good. Two of the most underrated pitchers in the league, no doubt. But I have to say something right now. I think we're on the precipice of a Francisco Lindor hot streak. I think so, too. He's swinging the bat really well. And even Keith made a note last night. He goes, you guys seen that bat speed? He goes, bat speed might be back. He's like, that's he's swinging the bat really well. He goes, he's got a different look in his eyes at the plate, which I don't know how Keith can see that. Keith is sitting up there in his box, but Keith goes, that's a different look in his eyes. Lindor, he might be coming into something right now, and I couldn't agree more. I agree with that take, but I think when Keith says something like that, it's probably a little bit ill-conceived because he probably just thinks someone's on greenies because when someone in the 1970s and 80s had a different look in their eyes, they were just taking amphetamines. Or in the Mets case, they were just doing cocaine. (laughs) Cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) Or they were just having sex in in the clubhouse. I don't think Francisco Lindor is doing any of these things, but I do agree with Keith. That he has a different look in his eyes. He seems keenly focused, and he is swinging a great bat right now. Interesting uh, thought. Do we think Lindor might have been playing through this abdominal? If we see him start swinging the bat this much or this better, and it's different bats to be a different player, do we think that maybe he had had this tweak all year long and was trying to play through it? You, you're smarter than you look, guy. Because well, thank you. it would it would make sense that he would have tweaked it. After a short layoff, like the All-Star break, you know, like not swinging for just a full week. That's not really enough to get healthy. That is, I feel like, just enough to let a lingering issue tighten up. Not a medical professional over here, nor do I claim to be to any of the listeners at home. Don't take my medical advice. But it would make sense that a muscle that would be giving you trouble could get tight over a short layoff. But the long layoff seems like it did wonders for him. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he's he looks like he's at least getting back to that form that we expect. He's swinging the bat well. He's hitting the ball all over the field. He's smoking it. He smoked another ball into the right center field gap again, and Jesus Sanchez, of course, played him perfectly again. So he was hitting the ball hard all night. Extremely positive signs to be seeing. And then we had an interesting sixth inning. Carrasco in the game. He got pulled, got into a little bit of trouble. There were some errors. This was an awful defensive game from both teams. A total of seven errors in this game. I can't remember the last time I saw that. It was probably the last time the Marlins played because the Marlins just play god-awful baseball. There's just not a lot of talent on the offensive side or defensive side over there, which is so shocking. But a lot of errors being made, a lot of trouble. Carlos Carrasco gets in it. Aaron Loop comes in to try and clear clean it up. And as we said earlier in this episode... There's some interesting stuff going on with Loop here, having a little bit of issues, and he walks in a run. 
It makes it 3-3, and he walks in Lewis Brinson, who the Marlins, by the way, walk the least amount of every team in baseball, and they were so patient this inning. It was crazy. I don't know if that's true. No, it is. It is true. They were talking about it. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check it real quick though, because I don't. I don't believe that they always say the most accurate things in that broadcast. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> also, just walking Lewis Brinson. That guy specifically is allergic to walks. He also walked Jesus Sanchez this inning too. He is definitely allergic to walks. Jesus Sanchez has to go to the games with an epipen because if he walks, he needs to be stabbed on first base. He had a Juan Soto like at bat. It was unbelievable patience like he took some really close pitches loop was just missing but he wasn't getting them to chase and that was the big thing for a team that chases a ton stat check on sny the marlins walk the fifth least in baseball all right based on walk rate so maybe they have the fewest actual walks in baseball because maybe they get around their lineup a little bit more but that pushes the walk rate up but they walk only more than the orioles the rangers the angels which is shocking and the royals how can the angels walk this uh, infrequently with Shohei Otani and half a season of Mike Trout. Well, because that's it. Because then you have David Fletcher, who doesn't walk. Then you have Jose Iglesias, who doesn't walk. <laughs> you have... Jose Iglesias has played like as much as Mike Trout this year. No. He has not played very much. Jose Churches? Jose Churches. He's 400 Jose... at-bats. The, when the fuck did that happen? This is, he's just bad. That's what <laughs> I guess. Is. I guess he's played every game. He I just think he was interested. <laughs> I might be thinking of Angelton Simmons, Angels, former Angel shortstop. Yeah, but that entire team just... I mean, there's not a lot of great hitters over there besides the guys that are the best players in the game. That's true, but this this is not Mets. This is not the Angels' up. This is the Mets' up. No, and I think it is important to talk about Aaron Loop. And again, I'll reiterate: for I feel like I do this every game breakdown now. This guy's not one of the best relievers in baseball. His ERA makes it seem like he might be, but he is not one of the best relievers in baseball. He's just getting figured out a little bit more. I think there's just more tape out there on him. Probably does very similar things to every single batter, I have to assume. He just doesn't have that much in his repertoire to really get too creative. It seemed like the Marlins knew what was coming. They were just not fooled at all. Besides, I think Jorge Alfaro, maybe, who, like, just, he gets fooled by everybody. I'm pretty sure he only throws two pitches. What, cutter and changeup? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe if he makes, maybe sometimes it becomes a slider, but he generally doesn't have a lot to fool people. It's just, I'm better hitting these spots and like picking off those strikes that he's very good at picking off. And again, he was just missing by inches on some of these pitches, like an inch inside, an inch outside. And to the Marlins' credit, they were patient. They took their walks and they tied the game up here at 3 3. Yeah. And just again, to fact check, 84% of Aaron Loop's pitches thrown this year have either been a fastball or a cutter. 9% changeups and 7% curveball. So he's predominantly a two pitch pitcher. He can still show the other two pitches. So I'll give more credit to him for that. And he. For all the warts that he has and these tiny things we're picking off, he is still performing at an elite level, and he just doesn't allow guys to barrel the ball. Like, this run, it wasn't like the ball was smoked like Brandon Crawford last week. He walked in a run. Like, sometimes with Aaron Loop, the umpire will just determine that, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah, and then luckily for the Mets, we answered back real quickly. Bottom of the seventh inning, got started with Jeff McNeil, who's definitely still a little bit of a funk. The swing's not looking great, but got a nice little single to center field. And then Patty Mazika, two hits on the day for him. They're not beautiful. They're not pretty, but he gets the hits done, hits it to right field. Jesus Sanchez makes an error trying to, I don't know, maybe throw Mazika out at first. It was super weird. It allows McNeil to go to third. And then Dom Smith comes to the plate and smokes one down the first baseline. Dommy singles. He loves a good single over here. He will not do any extra base hits. Not interested. But he smokes a single off the glove of Jesus Aguilar down the first baseline. Jeff McNeil scores. Pat Mazika to third. And then I got to bring up, our boy, Jonathan Villar, we talked about runners in scoring position, chopped one to third base or shortstop. I guess Joe Panic, wherever he was playing. Patrick Mazika might run in quicksand. He might be the slowest human being I've ever seen because it was a high chopper, had all the time in the world, and he was out by 25 feet. Went on contact. 
I've never seen someone be so dead to rights on a play that should have been close. That's when you tweeted Patty Mazika's running in quicksand? Yeah, I mean, like, that was I could have ran faster backwards, 100%. <laughs> that is not true. Oh, 1,000% <laughs> true. You didn't see this guy run. He's so slow. Um, I'm going to be honest. I think there's a legitimate chance that we could get a race together between you and Patty Mazika. And I could run backwards? And you, I would like you to run backwards if you think you're faster than him backwards, because really, it's not true. I really stand by this, that I could beat Patrick Mazika in a race running backwards. I think that you overestimate your own speed. Oh, a thousand percent. I ran like a <laughs> five-second, 40-yard dash. I'm incredibly slow, but uh, Patrick Mazika is even slower. A five-second, 40-yard dash seems very fast. There's no way you could break five and a half seconds in a 40-yard it, it's, dash. It's slow. It's real slow. I don't know about that. We're getting off topic again. It's an off-topic day. Yeah, it's the hangover episode. So, yeah, we're winning. 4-3, Mets are winning, and we just kind of hold on to it the rest of the game. Familia had a good inning in the 7th, in the 8th. Who came in to get the 8th? May. May. Oh, yeah, May. He almost killed himself diving for a ball, (laughs) which was just shocking how unathletic pitchers really are at the end of the day. Besides Jacob DeGrom and Shohei Otani, they are just not athletes. They should not try to catch balls. How dare you cast dispersion on Ed Scherzer? uh, Scherzer's not an athlete. Scherzer's an incredible athlete. Scherzer does the base running drills in the days he pitches. I don't care if he goes out there and takes BP. Strowman is a great athlete, one of the best athletes in baseball. You're right. But I I just, I always give Scherzer the credit because when he's out there, like, like he'll he'll do like the drill where he'll stand on second base and the coach will tell him like second lead go and he'll take his three shuffles and run home. (laughs) Just getting his running in. That's all that is. Dude, he's the baseball player. He's here for all facets of the game. R.I.P. to pitchers hitting. Yes, R.I.P. to that, because, boy, is it awful. Sandy Alcantara showed us that last night when he just simply has no idea what to do with a piece of wood in his hands at the plate. It's unbelievable. But anyway, clean seventh, clean eighth. Edwin Diaz comes in for the ninth. One, two, three. Smell you later. Mets beat the Marlins. Sweep. Big sweep. sweep. Needed it. Sweep, sweep, sweep. Unfortunately, the Rockies couldn't do us any help. They blew a game against the Braves because, you know, the Rockies, thanks for that. And the Nationals also blew a huge lead against the Phillies. So we didn't gain any games, but we're winning the games that we should. We're beating the bad teams. And we got to keep doing this moving forward. All right, little prospect report time. Let's talk about some prospects. You got some names for me, James. You got some interesting names that we have not talked about here. But first, let's talk about a familiar one, Ronnie Mauricio. Yeah, Ronnie Mauricio, I touched on it last prospect report last week that he's been taking a lot more walks over the last few weeks and things might have been clicking and he has continued with another torrid week hell yeah just dominating the world at brooklyn he's hitting 359 with a 457 on base percentage of 590 slug over his last 11 games at the time of this recording and he seems to be much more comfortable he seems to be much more in control of his at-bats all the videos that get put up on twitter again shout out jacob resnick he's on top of all the minor league videos he's the mets goat at that the guy just looks like he is much more confident in his abilities. That's really coincided with his appearance on the Mets Up podcast. So, shout out Ronnie. He seems to be taking a step. I'm going to throw a massive, massive party when that WRC Plus gets over 100 for the season. I'm going to just be off the moon. And our other boy, I forgot to put this in the notes, but I just remembered it. Jalen. Jalen Palmer, multi-home run game in Brooklyn. He's finally yeah. figured it out. Since getting called up to Brooklyn, I believe he has a 780 OPS, which may not sound like anything great. But this is like an improvement. He was struggling very early on, and it seems like as he's getting more comfortable there, playing center field a little bit more, he has started to swing the bat a lot well, including this multi-home run game, which happened a few nights ago. So the Mets up boys, they're doing good. You know, some people might say, when you get on this podcast for an interview, you play better. We'll be happy to have Michael Conforto on, Dom Smith, you want to talk? We'll make you better. Whatever it is, we'll help you out. 
whenever you guys want. We know you're listening. So just let us know. Slide in the DMs. Malcolm Fordo, Dom Smith, Pete Alonso, Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil. Just come on the Messed Up Podcast. But I've really dove into most of the Mets' high-profile hitters during these prospect reports throughout the season. So this time, I wanted to touch on three very, very low-key pitchers in the Mets organization that I'm sure most people out there have never heard of. I barely even knew who they were, and I spent a lot of time researching this kind of stuff. The first guy is Adam Oler, or Oler, O-L-L-E-R. I don't know how to pronounce that name. should have looked that up. I'm sorry, Adam. But there's a 26-year-old right now pitching for uh, Syracuse. He's 6'4", 225. we got a big boy. This is his third organization that he's pitched with in the major leagues. He was a, drafted by the Pirates, and I believe he was with the Giants for one year in 2019. He has ripped through double-A Bingham this year with over a 30% K rate in 80 innings pitched. And since he was called up to triple-A three weeks ago, he has similarly dominated with 22 strikeouts in his first 17 innings and only one earned run, including a 12-strikeout game in six innings, his triple-A debut. So this is a guy who's like another depth piece that can be someone who's important for the Mets either in the last month of the year this year or possibly even to next year. Just general organizational depth of pitching. Something that this team lacks seems to be improving very rapidly. Next guy I want to touch on is Josh Walker, a bigger boy at 6'6", 225. Big boys. Also 26 years old. And these two guys, along with Jared Robinson, who I mentioned last week, it really shows that the Mets front office was working diligently to bring in these types of relatively high potential older upper-level minor league guys, minor league free agent types, during the last offseason to try and, again, beef up the Mets' pitching depth in the upper minors. And Walker started the season at Brooklyn. He is already pitching at Syracuse this year, which is a pretty crazy rise for a guy who's bounced around organizations at 26 years old. Twice this year for Binghamton, he took no hitters through six innings. Twice. Pretty good. Pretty fucking good. Along with a strikeout rate above 20%. He has not been as good in AAA this year, not like Oler. He's had six starts there. He's given up at least seven runs twice. But the other four times, he's given up two or fewer. So there's something to work with here. He doesn't have the same swing and miss stuff. He's a bigger guy who pitches to more contact. I'm assuming he has a sinker. I couldn't find any information about his repertoire anywhere. But that's just a simple assumption I'm going to make. And... These are just two guys who are acting as organizational depth, and you need shit like this because as the Mets saw this year, you're giving innings to guys like Gerard Eikhoff, Jared Yamamoto, Joey Lucchese was a godsend before he got Tommy John surgery. Like You need as many guys like this as possible to slot in and do competent things for your team. Yeah, so we don't have to pitch maybe Vance Worley. I yes. really don't want to see that guy suit up in a Mets uniform. <laughs> you might. You still might. Still, still early in September. Last guy I want to shout out is a 17-year-old. His name is Joel Diaz. I want to shout out my guy Gator Sosa on Twitter of Prospects1500 for finding this guy because he was well off my radar. Again, he's 17 years old. He's pitching in the Dominican Summer League, otherwise known as the DSL. This guy was born in 2004. That's disgusting. I've never That's felt awful. older in my entire life than looking oh. at this guy's fan grass and he was born in 2004. We were eight years old. <laughs> yes. That's disgusting to think about that as an eight-year-old, this kid was just coming out the womb. I don't like to think about that. Playing competitive baseball at a youth level. And this guy was a newborn child. But he had no publicity as international signing because, as I mentioned last week, the Mets have not given any bonuses in the seven figures since Alex Ramirez two years ago. His bonus wasn't even listed on Spotrack, so I'm assuming it was somewhere between ten and 50000 Because when your bonus is that low, you're not required to actually list how much money you're giving these young men. But he is ripping the Dominican Summer League to shreds. He has 39 strikeouts in his first 26 innings and has not allowed a single run. So this is a guy to keep an eye out for. If he can finish the year out like this, 
wind up maybe pitching in the complex league in the spring, playing some nice winter ball and doing well there. He could be one of these meteoric risers that winds up being on the Mets' top 10 prospect list by middle of next season. So everyone keep an eye out for Joel Diaz. A lot of really good players, not necessarily from the Mets, but in general in Major League Baseball, have come from that Dominican Summer League. Mm -hmm. That league is a hotbed for talent. The guys who rise to the top of that league end up being very solid players many times. So while it's not really like the same level as like Brooklyn or St. Lucie or Binghamton, if you're doing really well in there, there's something to at least keep an eye out for, which it seems like there is with Joel Diaz. Yeah, there's definitely a certain level of competition down there. And iron sharpens iron, something we've yes. said before. I like that. I like that saying a lot. I also want to give a little shout out. This is weird, but it's another 26-year-old pitcher, David Griffin. So this guy has a super interesting story. He had not been in minor league baseball besides this year. The Mets signed him. He'd been playing in indie ball. Some of the teams that he's played for since 2019, uh... He played for the Gary South Shore Railcats in Gary, wow. Indiana in 2019. Gary is a shithole. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> 2020, he played for the Rockland Boulders in the All-American Baseball Challenge. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> he also then played for the 2020 Road Warrior Black Sox in the Yinzer Baseball Confederacy. That sounds made up. <laughs> Yinzer is like a big Pittsburgh slang. I only know that because there's a popular baseball YouTuber who throws around Yinzer all the time. It's a Pittsburgh slang. It's people from Pittsburgh are the Yinzers. Yeah, this is a fake. These are all fake teams. These are shout out the Black Sox. What's going on there? <laughs> the Road Warrior Black Sox of the Yinzer, Yinzer Baseball Confederacy. Well, the Mets signed him in 2021. And while he is a little bit older, 26 years old, so far in A-ball this year, he's actually been pretty good. Now, I don't know what the actual quality of talent at the end level is going to be here. But I feel like I like these good stories. I also, one of the people I know in Boston is friends with this dude, like very good friends. So give David Griffin a shout out here. So far in 11 starts this year in A-ball, four and run record, 2.79 ERA. At Brooklyn so far, he's made four starts, 2.29 ERA in his four starts. Striking out 61 batters in 58 innings and a whip at 1.28. Just a shout out for a feel good story of a guy who's getting a shot. I hope it works out for David Griffin. Hell yeah, me too. And that leads us now into our preview. Who we got coming up next? Nationals, right? Five games against the Nationals. Brad Hand revenge tour. Let's do it. Jesus Christ. I can't believe we have Brad Hand. It's a meme. It's unbelievable that he's on this team now. After <laughs> all the stuff that was going on, we were basically throwing a party when he got DFA'd. Yeah, now he's a Met. Now he's I a Met. I dug that guy's grave and dropped him in it. Well, what are the pitching matchups here against the Nationals? Because, again, we're going to be doing this. I have all the confidence in saying, if you do not get a hit in this series as a Mets player again, you're off the team. We're if banishing you don't get you a hit again. in five games against the Nationals, you probably should not be in, in Major League Baseball. Yes. But Friday night, the Mets are going to be throwing Rich Hill against our boy, Sean Nolan. Oh, boy. It's just hard, hard throwing, Sean Nolan. Definitely. And then Saturday for the doubleheader, we have Stroman and Tyler McGill on tap against Eric Fetty and question mark. If it was me, I would see if Marcus Stroman was comfortable swapping and pitching on Friday just because I'd rather have Stroh in a nine-inning game and I'd rather have Rich Hill in a seven-inning game. Yeah. So I'm curious, based on when we're recording this, if that's something the Mets are going to switch around. And then Sunday afternoon, we have Dayman Taiwan Walker up against Josiah Gray. It's probably that's the most interesting pitching matchup of the series. Yeah, that Josiah Gray is really good. New York kid as well. So Josiah Gray is good. He's his curveball at this young point in his career is devastating. His fastball, he throws hard, but it has a lot of life, but it's been very prone to allowing home runs early. He has not been able to um 
get the same type of success throwing in the top half of the strike zone that he had in AAA. So there's a young pitcher, top prospect, all the talent in the world, an adjustment he's going to have to make. But until he does, I would love to hit three home runs off of that high fastball on Sunday afternoon. And then the Mets do not have a starter named yet for Monday, which is weird because I feel like we have five guys in this rotation. It'd be Carrasco, but it's like a week yeah. away, so they probably just don't actually know what's going to happen. No, well, Carrasco's listed for the Tuesday's game, again, in Miami, but not on Mondays. So then, you know, that would technically be Trevor Williams' start, I think. I guess, yeah. Oh, yeah, because we have a double header, so we still need a six-man rotation. So it probably will be Trevor Williams on Monday, then. Yeah, very winnable series. Uh, I'm going to say something crazy here. Let's we got to win all five. You, yeah, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah, take yeah. five from the Nationals. There's no excuse to that. 100%. If you don't take five from the Nationals, then you have to take four and take all three the next series from the Marlins. Yeah, and like uh, the Nationals got like a reinforcement, and uh, Caber Ruiz is now up on the Major League roster. He's actually a very good player, solid catcher. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit of a problem along with Juan Soto, but... The rest of the lineup doesn't scare you. Keeper Ruiz doesn't really have any types of projection with the bat right now. I think eventually he has a chance to be one of those catchers who's like 280, 20, 80, 80. Yeah. But I don't think at this juncture he's a bat you necessarily need to fear. Be aware well, of him because in he's In this smart. Nationals lineup, yeah. I mean, this Nationals team has actually still been hitting very surprisingly. I did my big pitcher preview for pitcher list last week. I'm doing another one this coming Tuesday, previewing fancy baseball starts the rest of the season with Nick Pollock. But this national team has found a way to keep hitting. Lane Thomas, a guy I shouted out last week, has honestly swung the stick for some power. Juan Stoda was still the best hitter in baseball. Josh Bell has woken up. Yadiel Hernandez is not really terrible. <laughs> Carter Keboom has been worse than worse than he was last year, which was not a Major League Baseball player. That guy's so bad. He's actually kind of hitting for a little bit more power. I don't think he'll ever be good, but I think that he's kind of comparable to an eventual utility infielder who could be okay. I was about to say, Carter Keeboom's such a lock to, like, be good at 30 and, like, figure it out yeah. then. <laughs> Finally grow into his body. I'm starting, to think, I'm starting to think that Gavin Lux is the same, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Gotta take five against this Nationals team. They're just not very good. Gotta take five. I'm putting, like, I'm not even putting the pressure on the Mets because it doesn't matter what I say, but the Mets need to start just schmacking teams around there's no excuse these are the bottom feeders of the league this is the bottom feeders of the division if you want to catch the Braves who are struggling this is what you got to do you got to win these games because you keep putting these W's in these columns in these win columns and you're going to put the pressure back on the Braves I wouldn't say the Braves are struggling but the Mets are gaining ground because they're in a more difficult part of the schedule similarly to how the Braves flew past the Mets when they were playing the Marlins and Nationals and Pirates and Cardinals and shit and we were on the west coast they're going to lose a series in Los Angeles, and then they're going to Colorado. As I mentioned, Colorado is one of the best teams at home in all of baseball. It's not an easy place to win. Mets somehow did take two of three from there, which is kind of hilarious in hindsight. But let's just hope that some Coors, ma- Coors Field magic happens for the Rockies, and they take, cha- take care of the Braves. It's also worth noting that after you play in Colorado, your season gets fucked. There's like a huge article about the Los Angeles Dodgers talking about what it's like to play in Coors after Coors, because this is what people don't talk about, the after Coors effect. You get that boost offensively when you go there, but when you come back, you get hit by a train that is, you know, the change in altitude and just your fatigue and everything. Yeah, and curveballs. You're seeing different pitches again. The Dodgers record, I believe, after playing in Coors is significantly sub-500 in the series immediately after it. So there is going to be even a little bit of lag time after they play in Colorado. Yeah, I remember that article. I think it was a baseball prospectus piece from 2019, I want to say. And it was pretty eye-opening because a lot of times when hitters leave 
the Rockies, people like say, oh, that guy's done. It's not going to happen. I think a lot of hitters have proven that wrong now over the last few years. Sure, Nolan Arado's taken Nolan Arenado has taken a step back, but he's still a prolific power hitter. DJ LeMahieu had the best season of his career after leaving Coors Field. There is an adjustment that goes into going to Coors and leaving it. And the Rockies have to go through that adjustment every single week, which is why their road record is so bad on top of how good their home record is. And, of course, they're coming to Atlanta next week because the way MLB schedules work, you play, you play the same one team season series in a week. So we have that to look forward to while we're playing the Yankees. I think uh, the Rockies will be in Atlanta. But let's just win these games. Mets have eight games left against shit teams, and you got to win seven of them minimum. Yeah, have to win seven. That's the absolute least we'll take here. And of course, you guys will be able to listen to our takes and listen to what we're thinking about these games. And if you for somehow don't watch them, you'll get these detailed play-by-play in-depth analysis from us every single episode. So make sure you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at MetsUp, the YouTube channel, MetsUp Podcast. Follow James on Twitter, Jeter had no range. Follow me on Twitter at GiraffeNeckMark. Make sure you're following us on how you listen to it, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find them. Follow us, like us, rating, review, whatever you got to do to make sure you don't miss out on the next episode because, of course, it's going to be good. And the Francisco Alvarez interview is coming as well. We got to keep teasing that because why not? We got to dangle it right in front of your face for you. Make sure you guys stay on top of it. This is the place to be if you want to listen to your Mets news, Mets info, Mets analysis. That's where we'll wrap it up, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you guys so much for watching. And we'll catch you on episode number 47 of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. See you guys later.